Section 5 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 5. Chapter thirty eight, part five. Such a spirited reply, notwithstanding the obliging terms interspersed in it, was but ill fitted to conciliate friendship between these rival princesses, or cure those mutual jealousies which had already taken place. Elizabeth equipped a fleet on pretence of pursuing pirates but probably with an intention of intercepting the queen of scots in her return homewards mary embarked at calais and passing the english fleet in a fog arrived safely at leith attended by her three uncles the duke of aumale the grand prior and the marquis of elbeuf together with the marquis of damville and other french courtiers this change of abode and situation was very little agreeable to that princess besides her natural prepossessions in favour of a country in which she had been educated from her earliest infancy and where she had borne so high a rank she could not forbear both regretting the society of that people so celebrated for their humane disposition and their respectful attachment to their sovereign and reflecting on the disparity of the scene which lay before her it is said that after she was embarked at calais she kept her eyes fixed on the coast of france and never turned them from that beloved object till darkness fell and intercepted it from her view she then ordered a couch to be spread for her in the open air and charged the pilot that if in the morning the land were still in sight he should awake her and afford her one parting view of that country in which all her affections were centred the weather proved calm so that the ship made little way in the night-time and mary had once more an opportunity of seeing the french coast she sat up on her couch and still looking towards the land often repeated these words farewell france farewell i shall never see thee more the first aspect however of things in scotland was more favourable if not to her pleasure and happiness at least to her repose and security than she had reason to apprehend no sooner did the french galleys appear off leith than people of all ranks who had long expected their arrival flocked towards the shore with an earnest impatience to behold and receive their young sovereign some were led by duty some by interest some by curiosity and all combined to express their attachment to her and to insinuate themselves into her confidence on the commencement of her administration she had now reached her nineteenth year and the bloom of her youth and amiable beauty of her person 
were further recommended by the affability of her address, the politeness of her manners, and the elegance of her genius. Well accomplished in all the superficial but engaging graces of a court, she afforded, when better known, still more promising indications of her character, and men prognosticated both humanity from her soft and obliging deportment, and penetration from her taste in all the refined arts of music, eloquence, and poetry. And as the Scots had long been deprived of the presence of their sovereign, whom they once despaired evermore to behold among them, her arrival seemed to give universal satisfaction, and nothing appeared about the court but symptoms of affection, joy, and festivity. The first measures which Mary embraced confirmed all the prepossessions entertained in her favour. She followed the advice given her in France by Doisel and the Bishop of Amiens, as well as her uncles, and she bestowed her confidence entirely on the leaders of the reformed party, who had greatest influence over the people, and who, she found, were alone able to support her government. Her brother, Lord James, whom she soon after created Earl of Murray, obtained the chief authority, and after him Liddington, Secretary of State, a man of great sagacity, had a principal share in her confidence. By the vigour of these men's measures, she endeavoured to establish order and justice in a country divided by public factions and private feuds, and that fierce, intractable people, unacquainted with laws and obedience, seemed for a time to submit peaceably to her gentle and prudent administration. But there was one circumstance which blasted all these promising appearances, and bereaved Mary of that general favour which her agreeable manners and judicious deportment gave her just reason to expect. She was still a papist, and though she published, soon after her arrival, a proclamation enjoining every one to submit to the established religion, the preachers and their adherents could neither be reconciled to a person polluted with so great an abomination, nor lay aside their jealousies of her future conduct. It was with great difficulty she could obtain permission for saying mass in her own chapel, and had not the people apprehended that if she had here met with a refusal, she would instantly have returned to France. The zealots never would have granted her even that small indulgence. The cry was, Shall we suffer that idol to be again erected within the realm? It was asserted in the pulpit that one mass was more terrible than ten thousand armed men landed to invade the kingdom. Lord Lindsay and the gentlemen of Fife exclaimed that the idolater should die the death. Such was their expression. One that carried tapers for the ceremony of that worship was attacked and insulted in the court of the palace, and if Lord James and some popular leaders had not interposed, the most dangerous uproar was justly apprehended from the ungoverned fury of the multitude. The usual prayers in the churches were to this purpose, that God would turn the Queen's heart, 
which was obstinate against him and his truth, or if his holy will be otherwise, that he would strengthen the hearts and hands of the elect, stoutly to oppose the rage of all tyrants. Nay, it was openly called in question whether that princess, being an idolatress, was entitled to any authority, even in civil matters. The helpless queen was every moment exposed to contumely, which she bore with benignity and patience. Soon after her arrival she dined in the castle of Edinburgh, and it was there contrived that a boy six years of age should be let down from the roof and should present her with a Bible, a Psalter, and the keys of the castle, lest she should be at a loss to understand this insult on her as a papist. All the decorations express the burning of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and other punishments inflicted by God upon idolatry. The town council of Edinburgh had the assurance from their own authority to issue a proclamation banishing from their district all the wicked rabble of Antichrist the Pope, such as priests, monks, friars, together with adulterers and fornicators. And because the Privy Council suspended the magistrates for their insolence, the passionate historians of that age have inferred that the Queen was engaged, by a sympathy of manners, to take adulterers and fornicators under her protection. It appears probable that the magistrates were afterwards reinstated in their office, and that their proclamation was confirmed. But all the insolence of the people was inconsiderable in comparison of that which was exercised by the clergy and the preachers, who took a pride in vilifying, even to her face, this amiable princess. The assembly of the church framed an address, in which, after telling her that her mass was a bastard service of God, the fountain of all impiety, and the source of every evil which abounded in the realm, they expressed their hopes that she would ere this time have preferred truth to her own preconceived opinion, and have renounced her religion, which, they assured her, was nothing but abomination and vanity. They said that the present abuses of government were so enormous that if a speedy remedy were not provided, God would not fail in his anger to strike the head and the tail, the disobedient prince and sinful people. They required that severe punishment should be inflicted on adulterers and fornicators, and they concluded with demanding for themselves some addition both of power and property. The ringleader in all these insults was John Knox, who possessed an uncontrolled authority in the church, and even in the civil affairs of the nation, and who triumphed in the contumelious usage of his sovereign. His usual appellation for the queen was Jezebel, and though she endeavoured by the most gracious condescension to win his favour, all her insinuations could gain nothing on his obdurate heart. She promised him access to her whenever he demanded it, and she even desired him, if he found her blamable in anything, to reprehend her freely in private, 
rather than vilify her in the pulpit before the whole people. But he plainly told her that he had a public ministry entrusted to him, that if she would come to church, she should there hear the gospel of truth, and that it was not his business to apply to every individual, nor had he leisure for that occupation. The political principles of the man, which he communicated to his brethren, were as full of sedition as his theological were of rage and bigotry. Though he once condescended so far as to tell the queen that he would submit to her, in the same manner as Paul did to Nero, he remained not long in this dutiful strain. He said to her that Samuel feared not to slay Agag the fat and delicate king of Amalek, whom King Saul had saved, neither spared Elias Jezebel's false prophets, and Baal's priests, though King Ahab was present. Phineas, added he, was no magistrate, yet feared he not to strike Cosby and Zimri in the very act of filthy fornication. And so, madam, your grace may see that others than chief magistrates may lawfully inflict punishment on such crimes as are condemned by the law of God. Knox had formerly, during the reign of Mary of England, written a book against female succession to the crown. The title of it is The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regimen of Women. He was too proud either to recant the tenets of this book, or even to apologize for them, and his conduct showed that he thought no more civility than loyalty due to any of the female sex. The whole life of Mary was, from the demeanor of these men, filled with bitterness and sorrow. This rustic apostle scruples not, in his history, to inform us that he once treated her with such severity that she lost all command of temper and dissolved in tears before him. Yet so far from being moved with youth and beauty, and royal dignity reduced to that condition, he persevered in his insolent reproofs, and when he relates this incident he discovers a visible pride and satisfaction in his own conduct. The pulpits had become mere scenes of railing against the vices of the court, among which were always noted as the principal, feasting, finery, dancing, balls, and whoredom, their necessary attendant. Some ornaments which the ladies at that time wore upon their petticoats excited mightily the indignation of the preachers, and they affirmed that such vanity would provoke God's vengeance not only against these foolish women, but against the whole realm. Mary, whose age, condition, and education invited her to liberty and cheerfulness, was curbed in all amusements by the absurd severity of these reformers, and she found every moment reason to regret her leaving that country from whose manners she had in her early youth received the first impressions. 
her two uncles, the Duke of Aumale and the Grand Prior, with the other French nobility, soon took leave of her. The Marquis of Elbeuf remained some time longer, but after his departure she was left to the society of her own subjects, men unacquainted with the pleasures of conversation, ignorant of arts and civility, and corrupted beyond their usual rusticity by a dismal fanaticism which rendered them incapable of all humanity or improvement. Though Mary had made no attempt to restore the ancient religion, her popery was a sufficient crime. Though her behaviour was hitherto irreproachable, and her manners sweet and engaging, her gaiety and ease were interpreted as signs of dissolute vanity, and to the harsh and preposterous usage which this princess met with may in part be ascribed those errors of her subsequent conduct, which seemed so little of a piece with the general tenor of her character. There happened to the Marquis of Elbeuf, before his departure, an adventure which, though frivolous, might enable him to give Mary's friends in France a melancholy idea of her situation. This nobleman, with the Earl of Bothwell and some other young courtier, had been engaged after a debauch to pay a visit to a woman called Alison Craig, who was known to be liberal of her favours, and because they were denied admittance, they broke the windows, thrust open the door, and committed some disorders in searching for the damsel. It happened that the assembly of the church was sitting at that time, and they immediately took the matter under their conscience. In conjunction with several of the nobility, they presented an address to the queen, which was introduced with this awful prelude. To the queen's majesty, and to her secret and great council, her grace's faithful and obedient subjects, the professors of Christ Jesus's holy evangel, wish the spirit of righteous judgment. The tenor of the petition was that the fear of God, the duty which they owed her grace, and the terrible threatenings denounced by God against every city or country where horrible crimes were openly committed, compelled them to demand the severe punishment of such as had done what in them lay to kindle the wrath of God against the whole realm, that the iniquity of which they complained was so heinous and so horrible that they should esteem themselves accomplices in it if they had been engaged by worldly fear or servile complaisance to pass over it in silence or bury it in oblivion that as they owed her grace obedience in the administration of justice so were they entitled to require of her in return the sharp and condign punishment of this enormity which they repeated it might draw down the vengeance of god on the whole kingdom and that they maintained it to be her duty to lay aside all private affections toward the actors in so heinous a crime and so enormous a villainy and without delay bring them to a trial and inflict the severest penalty upon them the queen gave a gracious reception to his peremptory address 
but because she probably thought that breaking the windows of a brothel merited not such severe reprehension she only replied that her uncle was a stranger and that he was attended by a young company but she would put such order to him and to all others that her subjects should henceforth have no reason to complain her passing over this incident so slightly was the source of great discontent and was regarded as a proof of the most profligate manners it is not to be omitted that alison craig the cause of all the uproar was known to entertain a commerce with the earl of arran who on account of his great zeal for the reformation was without scruple indulged in that enormity some of the populace of edinburgh broke into the queen's chapel during her absence and committed outrages for which two of them were indicted and it was intended to bring them to a trial knox wrote circular letters to the most considerable zealots of the party and charged them to appear in town and protect their brethren the holy sacraments he there said are abused by profane papists the mass has been said and in worshipping that idol the priests have omitted no ceremony not even the conjuring of their accursed water that had ever been practised in the time of the greatest blindness these violent measures for opposing justice were little short of rebellion and knox was summoned before the council to answer for his offence the courage of the man was equal to his insolence he scrupled not to tell the queen that the pestilent papists who had inflamed her against these holy men were the sons of the devil and must therefore obey the directions of their father who had been a liar and a manslayer from the beginning the matter ended with the full acquittal of knox randolph the english ambassador in scotland had reason to write to cecil speaking of the scottish nation i think marvellously of the wisdom of god that gave this unruly inconstant and cumbersome people no more power nor substance for they would otherwise run wild we have related these incidents at greater length than the necessity of our subject may seem to require but even trivial circumstances which show the manner of the age are often more instructive as well as entertaining than the great transactions of wars and negotiations which are nearly similar in all periods and in all countries of the world the reformed clergy in scotland had at that time a very natural reason for their ill humour namely the poverty or rather beggary to which they were reduced the nobility and gentry had at first laid their hands on all the property of the regular clergy without making any provision for the friars and nuns whom they turned out of their possessions the secular clergy of the catholic communion though they lost all ecclesiastical jurisdiction still held some of the temporalities of their benefices and either became laymen themselves and converted them into private property or made conveyance of them at low prices to the nobility 
who thus enriched themselves by the plunder of the church. The new leaders had hitherto subsisted chiefly by the voluntary oblations of the faithful, and in a poor country, divided in religious sentiments, this establishment was regarded as very scanty and very precarious. Repeated applications were made for a legal settlement to the preachers, and though almost everything in the kingdom was governed by their zeal and caprice, it was with difficulty that their request was at last complied with. The fanatical spirit which they indulged, and their industry in decrying the principles and practices of the Romish communion, which placed such merit in enriching the clergy, proved now a very sensible obstacle to their acquisitions. The convention, however, passed a vote, by which they divided all the ecclesiastical benefices into twenty-one shares. They assigned fourteen to the ancient possessors. Of the remaining seven they granted three to the crown, and if that were found to answer the public expenses, they bestowed the overplus on the reformed ministers. The queen was empowered to levy all the seven, and it was ordained that she should afterwards pay to the clergy what should be judged to suffice for their maintenance. The necessities of the crown, the rapacity of the courtier, and the small affection which Mary bore to the Protestant ecclesiastics, rendered their revenues contemptible as well as uncertain, and the preachers, finding that they could not rival the gentry, or even the middling rank of men in opulence and plenty, were necessitated to betake themselves to other expedients for supporting their authority. They affected a furious zeal for religion, morose manners, a vulgar and familiar yet mysterious cant, and though the liberality of subsequent princes put them afterwards on a better footing with regard to revenue, and thereby corrected in some degree those bad habits, it must be confessed that while many other advantages attend Presbyterian government, these inconveniences are not easily separated from the genius of that ecclesiastical polity. End of section 5, chapter 38, part 5.